Hello, and welcome to the Time to Zero In podcast, produced by Break, the road safety charity, and hosted by me, Joshua Harris. This is the series where we speak with experts from across the safe and healthy mobility community to zero in on the issues, trends, and innovations that can help us move towards a world where no one is killed or seriously injured on the roads, and where we can all be confident to move about in a safe and healthy way every day. A vision for the future known as Vision Zero. Today, we're going to be zeroing in on connected and autonomous vehicles with Dr. Nick Reed. This episode is kindly sponsored by our friends at Litix, the leading provider of video telematics and fleet management solutions. At the end of today's show, I'll be speaking with Damien Penny, European Vice President, to zero in on why road safety is so important to their organisation. Our guest for today's episode is Dr. Nick Reed, an expert on the future of mobility. Nick was previously the head of mobility R&D at the world's largest automotive supplier and is now an independent consultant and the founder of Reed Mobility. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Nick about technologies at the forefront of vehicle development, connectivity and autonomy, and we will be seeking to explore what the potential benefits and challenges these technologies can bring, and how close we are to the development of a fully driverless car. Ahead of my chat with Nick, however, let's take time for a quick primer on Vision Zero. Vision Zero stems from the belief that every road death or serious injury is preventable. A Vision Zero approach to road safety is built upon two basic facts about people. One, we make mistakes and will make mistakes when on the roads. And two, we are vulnerable to being killed or seriously injured if we're in a crash. Vision Zero recognises these facts and designs them out of the equation. Put simply, this means that the whole road environment, vehicles, infrastructure, speed limits, post-crash care and road users work together as one system to minimise the chance of a crash, or, if a crash does take place, to prevent death or serious injury from occurring. At break, we believe that every road death and serious injury is a preventable tragedy. So let's take time to zero in on the solutions that can make our vision of zero a reality. So our guest today is Dr Nick Reed, an expert on the future of mobility. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Hi Josh, yeah, good to be here. Now, today we are here to talk about the future of mobility, but before we kick off, I'd like to ask a quick fire question. So can you tell us how did you make your last journey and what one thing do you think could have made it better from a safe and healthy mobility perspective? Well, my last journey has really been a habit that we've got into as a, as a family from the lockdown period, which is going for a walk in the evening. And so uh, we went up for a walk to the, the nearby countryside and that's been fantastic. It's been you know very positive for our physical and mental well-being. And in terms of what could have made it better, I mean, what's changed over the last few weeks has been the return of, of traffic. And I think that, you know, that there are some, some drivers who've chosen to take advantage of quieter roads in, in ways that are less positive and, and so, you know, accelerating and traveling at speeds that uh, are significantly above the limit. So I think about this a lot. I think about how intelligent speed adaptation systems that are coming in. Uh, will will have a big impact in terms of safety and, and the level of comfort we feel sharing environments with with vehicles. So uh, yeah, I, I look forward to those systems having a, a more of an impact on road behaviour. That's fantastic, and I think you've laid a little breadcrumb for us to pick up later on there regarding ISA and, and some of the technologies on the path to to potentially, I guess, driverless cars. But we'll, we'll get into that. So we are here to talk about the, the future of mobility, and in particular, two technologies: connectivity and autonomy, which I think are quite often described in the, in the same breath. So perhaps could you 
give our listeners a bit of an introduction to those two technologies and indeed why we often say connected and autonomous vehicles? Yeah, I can. So, I mean, connectivity in its rawest sense is, is just two systems that, that uh, communicate. It's the exchange of information for a, for a variety of purposes. It, it could be to provide entertainment into the vehicle. And I, I know a lot of travelers would, would enjoy the ability to, to have greater entertainment or information broadcast to them within the vehicle. It could be about safety. It could be a you know, warning of, of fog or congestion ahead. And, and you know, the, the likes of Highways England are very interested in the ability to communicate that sort of information to drivers more effectively. Or it could be uh, you know, things that give us more information about the state of a vehicle in terms of uh, an automated vehicle or, or vehicle with advanced safety systems, the ability for that vehicle to communicate its level of performance to, to an outside uh, organization or you know, an organization that is monitoring the state of that vehicle. That could be vital in terms of maintaining the, the status and, and performance of, of, uh, of that vehicle on its particular journey. So the connectivity piece has uh, a lot of different angles to it, and it's sometimes difficult to capture all of that the complexity of all of that when it just comes out in that single phrase of connectivity, but there's a lot there. I think uh, another dimension is the the management of vehicles in a fleet, you know, thinking about the likes of, of Uber and Lyft and, and how they manage the placement and organization of their vehicles. That's a, another key part of, of what connectivity enables us to achieve. So there's a, there's a lot in, in that, uh, that particular box. And then we throw in the automation dimension as well. And I, you know, it's it's the debatable concept. I prefer to use the term automation than, than autonomy. Uh, a lot of organizations don't make that distinction quite so clearly, but I, I, my, my preference is, is to, to talk about different levels of automation. And I think, you know, that there isn't a direct dependency there necessarily. An, an automated vehicle doesn't necessarily need to be connected. And indeed, for a lot of its safety functions, it shouldn't depend on connectivity. It should depend primarily on its onboard systems but connectivity will enable that vehicle to have a much greater level of functionality and and you know as part of a, a transport service it needs to be connected in order to understand you know where its next uh, where its next customer might be or, or or how it relates to the other vehicles that are taking part in in that service so so i think they are um distinct terms and they're not necessarily dependent on one another but they they come together so frequently that they they do they do tend to be bundled together in that phrase connected and automated vehicle. And can you just um, perhaps um, explain for for the listeners who may not know around the the levels of automation? Maybe just to explain what those levels mean and moving from zero to five. Yeah, so level zero is where there, there are no automation systems involved. Uh, level one is basic driver assistance systems. So it could be uh, a, a, an independent um, emergency braking system, for instance, or a, a lane guidance system. At level two, we start to see interactions between those driver assistance systems. Uh, so uh, a, an adaptive cruise control system plus a lane guidance system working together means that the driver um, can uh, allow the vehicle to, to do the driving whilst maintaining, maintaining full responsibility for the driving task. So the driver needs to be alert and attentive and, and ready to take over at any time. Now there's a, a disjunct here as, as we get to level three, which is where the driver is permitted to disengage from the driving task, but must be ready to take over at short notice. So I guess the uh, an example of that would be where the, the driver is uh, working on their emails whilst the vehicle is doing the driving. But if there's a, an alert sounded, then the driver must be ready to take over in short notice. Now, no one's exactly clear on what that short notice means, 
um, and there's lots of different differing evidence, many of which comes from the UK at University of Leeds, um, around what that means. Is it 10 seconds? Is it a minute before a, a driver can return to, to safe control of the vehicle? So there's a, there's a real challenge there in how a driver might be permitted to disengage from the task, but then need to, to regain their situational awareness at very short notice. And then moving up to level four is where the vehicle can manage the, the, the situation if a driver can't respond. So the driver doesn't need to be attentive. If they don't uh, respond uh, rapidly, then the vehicle can manage the situation and, and bring the vehicle to a safe stop. But it's only capable of performing that automated driving task in certain restricted conditions. Now, there are different examples of this. It could be a, a car that could do highway driving uh, in an automated mode. Or it could be a car without a, a steering wheel, but that only does very specific journeys. It might be a, a, a robo taxi that, that takes you from the station to the shopping area, but only does that route. So it couldn't divert to your house. It will only do certain specific routes. So those are two different types of level four vehicle. And then level five finally is, is the kind of nirvana. That's where the, the automation can do anything that a human driver can. That's a really big, big challenge and is, is perhaps decades away. And and you talked about intelligent speed assistance there. And, and I guess that is a system, isn't it, of uh, automation or autonomous, I guess, technology, which is on vehicles today. And I think that goes to a point about where we are on the journey now to what is perhaps seen as potentially the end point of connected and autonomous vehicles, which is the term driverless car. Can you unpack that a little bit? Where does driverless car or driverless vehicle fit within this sort of connected and automated world? And, and what sort of technologies do we have present and where are we on that journey? Uh, intelligent speed adaptation, I would I would class as um, as a driver assistance system, some, a system that helps a, a driver in maintaining safe control of their vehicle. And you know, many other systems uh, offer a similar function. So the likes of ESP, the st stability protection um, systems, uh, the likes of ACC, adaptive cruise control, and AEB, uh, autonomous emergency braking systems. And those are all sort of coming together to get us closer to. Uh, you know, those higher levels of automation where the driver has less um, of responsibility for safe control of the vehicle, but we're certainly not there yet. It is coming and lots of organisations are investing huge amounts uh, in making that happen. And, and indeed, the UK government is doing a lot to support the development and deployment of those vehicles because of the anticipated benefits that we see coming from the use of such vehicles. But yeah, I emphasize we're not there yet. The, those, those systems are there to, to support the driver and, and improve safety. And, and we, we certainly see that, that safety is being a, a critical benefit uh, of automated vehicles. But one of the biggest challenges we have is how do we prove that safety? I mean, I, I don't think we necessarily have a perfect understanding of what safety means today with human-driven vehicles. So establishing what better looks like uh, in terms of automation is a really challenging uh, is a really challenging task because it really much depends on what type of driving you're talking about if your automation system only works on highways then you need to be comparing to highways you don't need you don't you shouldn't be comparing to um, other types of driving where the, the risks are greater if your automation system only works when it's fine weather then you, you should be comparing to safety of human drivers in fine weather on highways and and so there's work to be done in proving what safe uh, safer performance looks like for automated vehicles compared to human driving
You've talked there about the the benefits, which is obviously a a key part of this discussion. And, you know, from Brake's perspective, we do see the huge potential benefits from from a safety perspective that can be bought from these connected and and automated technologies. I think we hear quite often that a fact around nine in 10 collisions in the UK have a contributory factor, which can be related to to human error. And I think there's a a widely cited study from the US as well, from from their National Highway Traffic Safety Agency, that 94% of collisions are caused by human error. And quite often these figures are cited to say so an automated technology can completely eliminate that that proportion of crashes. But I don't think it's as simple as that, is it? And you've touched upon some of the, the complexities around that. So can you perhaps explore that a little bit as well? Because when we talk in the intro about safe systems, it's all about how a vehicle plays one part of, of a whole system. So simply having an automated vehicle doesn't mean it will necessarily reduce human error or that proportion of crashes entirely. So I really like how you framed that question. The way you described human error as being a contributory factor, I think is really important because that doesn't necessarily mean that without that human error, the collision wouldn't have happened. It's it's there as a contributory factor. So I know organizations have done a lot of work looking at what proportion of collisions could be prevented by the use of automation. And, you know, it, it isn't the cure-all that, uh, that sometimes is portrayed in, in kind of futurist type presentations. There is um, a lot of work to be done to demonstrate what kind of safety performance can be achieved and a lot of work to do in terms of convincing the public about what what might be acceptable. I think there's a big difference between the situation today where drivers cause collisions versus machines causing collisions and injury and and potentially death and and the level of acceptability of that might be very different. So yeah, certainly a a field where we need to, to understand more about what safety performance can be achieved. I certainly think there's a huge amount that can be done, especially when we think about the collisions that are caused by fatigue, those that are caused by poor speed choice, those that are caused by impairments like drugs and and drinking, all of which should be eliminated by automated driving. That said, there is chance for human error to creep in in other forms. So has the code been created correctly? Was the data used for the training of the artificial intelligence that's controlling the vehicle? Was that selected appropriately by the the humans responsible for that system? So yeah, massive potential, but human error can find ways in in, in, uh, many other aspects beyond the driving task itself. We've talked briefly about the benefits around safety, which we will explore a bit further later. But obviously, the obstacles are one of the main things people talk about, it seems, these days when they talk about these technologies. And there's a a commonly discussed thought experiment that if there's a a tram or or a trolley hurtling down a track and it's going to kill five or ten people, that you've got an opportunity to, to pull a lever, which will make it go down another track where that would kill one person and sort of transporting that. I guess, ethical dilemma into the decisions which have to be made in the coding of autonomous vehicles as well. Some people say that that's not actually a factor when it comes to autonomous vehicles because it's too in-depth a system for that to matter. But can you perhaps explore that and your views on on the trolley problem and whether or not that is going to be an issue? Personally, I think it can be a distraction, but kind of the, the core of the the kind of philosophical debate I think is very relevant because an automated vehicle is always going to be making choices about how to behave and those choices will affect the risk experienced by the vehicle occupants and also by those in the vicinity of that vehicle and so your automated vehicle is is constantly managing and balancing those risks in in terms of the speed choice 
and the path it's taken, even the route it's taking. And whilst the trolley problem is a sort of crystallized, highly specific version of that, those choices, the actual concept behind that is actually very relevant, I think, in terms of how a, an automated vehicle chooses to manage risk throughout its, its journey from A to B. And so organizations that are developing and deploying these vehicles do have a responsibility to be able to understand how their vehicles are taking those risks or choosing that, uh, that risk profile. And when collisions do sadly occur, because they, they still will happen, let's, let's make no mistake about it, being able to explain why made those particular decisions and to be able to prevent them happening in future if it's found that you know that was a, a reason why a collision occurred and an injury or, or fatalities happened. So yeah, whilst, whilst the trolley problem itself can be a, a, a distraction at the core of it around that, that balancing and management of risk, I think it is really, really important and, and something that AV developers need to be wary of. I think that point about risk is really important as well because discussions I've heard around there will need to be some element of risk because otherwise in an urban environment, if there's ever an automated vehicle able to properly cope with a, a densely populated urban environment, it could just create gridlock because they wouldn't be able to push past the level of risk to, for example, leave a car park in which people were walking across the entrance. A human driver might edge through people slightly to get through. That's, I guess, a, a decision that will have to be made in perhaps in the early stages of, of the development of these technologies, do you feel, or something that will be developed as they roll out onto our roads? Well, I think that's a fascinating area to, to get into because it speaks to the sorts of risks we consider acceptable today. And those might be very different across individual drivers. It's certainly the behaviors and habits of drivers in different locations. Those who've learned to drive and, and frequently drive in dense urban areas might have a different uh, acceptance of risk than those uh, used to quieter, more rural areas. And uh, you know, as, a, as an AV developer, you might ha have to consider that kind of different driving style, diff different driving um, habits that, that you, free, you um, encounter on the road. And I'd say, so, yeah, getting into those discussions about what, what is truly acceptable, is it acceptable for human drivers to nudge through pedestrians because they feel they're delaying other traffic or, or should we allow that delay to happen because we don't want that, that risk to be experienced by the pedestrians or cyclists they are um, nudging through. So yeah, I, I think there's lots of interesting discussion and, and testing and trialing to be done around how vehicles behave in those complex environments. A lot of that will have to be done in simulation. And then we get into questions around how valid are your simulator models. And a lot of work is being done around how we can develop and validate simulations of human behaviors for the purposes of, of AV development. But yeah, lots of lots of interesting behavioral and, and cognitive science to be carried out in what at first glance seems like a, a clear kind of physics and engineering challenge also brings a lot of yeah, philosophical, psychological and, and societal um, debate to it as well. That's, it's an incredibly interesting area. And one thing I found, I, I sat upon a, a focus group, which was run by the, the Department for Transport around public attitudes to, to these vehicles. And I think there was actually quite a lot of surprise by the people participating about the level of governance and, and structure put around letting these vehicles on our roads. And I think you've touched on it a little bit there with regards to the testing that will need to be taking place. I think some members of the public just feel these vehicles will be let onto our roads without any sort of safety protocols in place. Can you talk a little bit to the sort of structures which are in place and, and what is actually happening these days and in projects now in simulations or, or indeed on the roads to, to make these, I guess, technologies a reality for the future? Yeah, and I think it, it's an area where we can be quite proud, actually, of what the government has been doing in terms of 
you know, setting up a department, CCAV, the Centre for Connecting Autonomous Vehicles, to, to, to manage the, the UK's approach and strategy around this technology uh, in terms of providing funding for research and development in this space. There have been many projects that have been fortunate to be involved in, in many of them for the, for the testing and, and trialling of automated vehicles. And then in terms of the work it's doing around regulations. So the Law Commission have been tasked with considering all of the, the potential regulatory issues around the deployment of automated vehicles. CCAV themselves, working with the DFT, produced a code of practice for trialling of, of automated vehicles. So there's a you know, readily accessible and, and very useful document that organisations can read that gives them the guidelines around what they need to do to be considered safe for the, the testing of, of automated vehicles. And there was also the Automated and Electric Vehicle Act passed in law, which gives guidance around what is considered an automated vehicle and, and gives some control to the Department for Transport around what is permitted to be used, uh, what types of vehicle are permitted to be used on the road. So uh, yeah, lots of initiatives been set up. What we need now is, is for the industry to, to, to catch up and, and really grasp the metal in terms of deploying those vehicles and, and extracting the benefits that we anticipate from them. And we talked about those benefits earlier, but we, we mainly focused on, on safety. But I think we talked a little bit about, for example, the potential benefits on congestion and other areas. Can you perhaps talk to what are the benefits beyond safety that we could see, I guess, if all the benefits of, of these technologies are realized? Yeah. And you know, again, I stress these are anticipated benefits. They're not necessarily, they, they won't necessarily be achieved if, if the vehicles aren't introduced in the manner that, that uh, enables us to exploit the, those anticipated benefits, as, as you've alluded to, you know, if they're introduced in ways that could easily result in more congestion and, and then you know, we, we lose that potential efficiency benefit. But certainly automated driving could enable uh, vehicles to travel more closely together. And we see that in trials of platooning on the, the motorway where trucks travel more closely together so that they get improved aerodynamic efficiency and, and improved fuel efficiency as a result. Use of automated vehicles in urban environments could enable you know, acceleration away from traffic lights to happen in a more um, smooth and coordinated manner, resulting in, in greater capacity on the network. But also just the fact that you are able to manage the behavior of the vehicles across the network more effectively might give you that increased capacity benefit as well. I think a massively important benefit for me is to enable independent mobility for more people more of the time. So those who are unable to drive at the moment, particularly disabled, particularly elderly um, travelers might be able to regain some of that independent mobility through the use of, of automated vehicles that can manage more of the journey uh, for them. And so, you know, enable them to play more of a role in, in terms of employment, education, healthcare, you know, all, all of those aspects might be improved through the use of, of automated vehicles. So again, if these are anticipated benefits, certainly something those working in the development of these vehicles see as, as being critical, but we need to see them happen in, in reality and we need to see that they deliver the kind of return on the investment that's necessary to achieve those benefits. And we also, you know, need to be not distracted by the bauble of automation when there might be other shorter term benefits that can be achieved through through other investments. And I'm thinking particularly uh, about walking and cycling and the, the active travel agenda. You know, the, there's lots of benefits that could be achieved through, you know, the support and facilitation of, of those active travel modes that we shouldn't be distracted from by, you know, the longer term benefit of automated vehicles.
I think that's a really interesting and, and topical point with, you know, just recently the government announcing a quite robust walking and, and cycling plan with a, a lot of changes to the highway code and areas like that proposed. I guess one issue we've been grasping with at break is that could the development of, as you say, these technologies potentially impinge on, on the benefits that could be delivered from active travel you need for both those forms of transport, probably for active travel, you need more space on the roads or, or on the pavements in, in that area to enable people to do so safely by you know segregated walking and cycling. And similarly for connected and autonomous vehicles or, or technologies thereof, you probably need more dedicated road space potentially or, or different road infrastructure to, to facilitate them. Do you, again, do you see a tension between those two sort of priorities at present? Definitely. The the, the Gateway project, which was the, the project I led um, in Greenwich uh, whilst I was working at TRL, where we were trialling automated vehicles in an urban environment, one of the challenges we often faced, the questions that was often posed to us, was that these small urban focused automated vehicles, surely it's going to be people who would otherwise walk and cycle that would be using them rather than getting people out of, of private cars. And that, that, that's definitely a risk for sure. But what I would envisage is that the use of these vehicles, that they are electrically powered and that they behave in very safe, very predictable uh, manner, means that people will feel more comfortable to walk and cycle, that you know, children of, of five, six, seven would be comfortable cycling in the presence of these automated vehicles because they would know that their presence would be detected and they would behave in a very risk averse manner. And so you would feel more comfortable cycling as a family uh, in the presence of these very predictable, very safe automated vehicles than you might be in uh, human driven vehicles where the behavior of the, the human driver may be less predictable. So again, these things need to be proven. They need to be demonstrated in the real world to show that and there is that perception that these vehicles do behave in a, in a safe manner. But I think once people feel comfortable in their presence, it will, it will be conducive to the active travel agenda in that people will feel more comfortable in the presence of, of these vehicles. They're, they're zero emission, they're very safe. It, it, it will feel more comfortable to, to walk and cycle in their presence than, than it does today. That's, that's really interesting. And a couple of things there I think I'd, I'd like to pick up and, and discuss with you on, one of which is the the fact that these vehicles will be electric, as, as you've discussed there, potentially. I, I want to know whether or not that's just because modern vehicles these days are moving to electric powertrains or whether or not there's actually something in the makeup of automated technologies which will require them to be part of electric vehicles as well. So I'll ask that question first before, before asking about the public acceptability point. Yeah, the, the, the powertrain issue, I, I think you know, there is a general trend towards electrification for, for emissions reasons, obviously, but um, there's no real direct reason why an automated vehicle needs to have an electric powertrain. It is somewhat simpler to, to moderate the, the, the level of input of, of, of acceleration into a, an automated vehicle but um, with an electric powertrain, but it's not um, a deal breaker if it's with a combustion engine vehicle. But as I say, you know, the, the trend is certainly in that direction. So if certainly the expectation is on the timescale that it will take for the introduction of automated vehicles, that they're very likely to be electric, electrically powered. We've talked throughout this discussion about the potential benefits and, and some of the potential challenges um, of these technologies. And one thing we've touched upon, I think, throughout the, the questions and the answers is around the public and the public's, I guess, acceptance or, or attitudes to these technologies. I think that's a really important point to discuss. Um, 
again, referring to some data that the government published, which was around that um, in a public attitudes track, I think just over 50% of people could mention an advantage of autonomous vehicles and, and safety was cited by 20% of people. However, 80% of people could mention a disadvantage and 58% of that 80% was a, a safety disadvantage. So it seems there's, there's a long way to go yet when it comes to, to public attitudes. So how do you think that's going to play out with this, this debate and how can we make sure there's buy-in from the public and we can have these vehicles on the roads and people actually using them? Yes, absolutely. The, the safety challenge is, is that um, ability to, to prove, demonstrate and prove um, the, the, the benefit of, of automation. And we're still at a stage where a fatality caused by an automated vehicle is, is worldwide news. Uh, whereas, you know, we, we all know, sadly, there are well over a million deaths every year on our roads where human driving is is a often a contributory factor. So once we can prove that automated vehicles do have that safety benefit, I think the adoption will will happen quite quickly. And and all of the other benefits that go along with it, you know, not just safety, but the, the accessibility and also the time, uh, you know, that, that you get back the time you are having to, to use when driving. I, I myself, I, I enjoy driving, but not very often. That's the reality of, of, of our roads today is that more often than not, it's it's in congested conditions and where you, your choice of, of driving style is limited by those around you. I would much rather spend the majority of the time that I currently spend driving doing other things. Um, and I think once people have a, a taste of that, they will... Um, they will adopt it very quickly because of because of that that benefit. They need to be convinced on the safety, of course, and I don't underestimate that challenge. And I think that's it's really important, firstly, to generate that baseline around what is is uh, safety performance today, and then to make those really fair, really robust comparisons around how automated vehicles can improve upon that baseline. And I think that's something that at break we're really interested to to focus on, which is around making sure that the public have the facts about these technologies and, and can make up their own minds around it. And one, again, to refer to this public attitude survey, which I, I believe was undertaken by the Department for Transport at that time, the public mainly thought that the, these technologies were directed for businesses and productivity gains. So again, there seems to be a, a kind of shifting of the dial in, in public perceptions, which needs to take place to make sure there is an awareness of the potential safety, environmental accessibility benefits, which we've talked through today. So I guess finally, I, I would like to talk around, I guess, the million dollar question. And, and I'd like to actually refer back to a statement that then Chancellor Philip Hammond made back in 2017 in the budget, I think it was, when he said the government is looking to have fully driverless cars without a safety attendant in the car on the roads in the UK by 2021. That's obviously next year. How far away do you actually think we are to seeing driverless vehicles in all road environments common on, on roads in the UK? That's uh, as you say, the million dollar question. And that challenge was you know, put out there by the Chancellor to, to be provocative and to, and to be world leading in ambition for the UK. And I think what he's aimed for there is not the same as what you've asked around you know, vehicles that can operate on all different types of road in, in all conditions, because that, that task, that level five autonomy, as it's known, is a long way off. You know, that, that a vehicle could drive in, on any road in any conditions equivalent to uh, that the human driver would be capable of driving is, is many years away, decades away. That said, a lot of the benefit of level five automation can be achieved by having good level four automation in lots of places. So the distinction there is level four is, is restricted in, in some way or another. It could be geographically, it could be to certain uh, weather conditions, but 
having that level four automation where the driver is, is unnecessary means that all of those safety benefits, the efficiency benefits, the accessibility benefits, the time benefits can be achieved for limited journey types. Now, those journey types initially may be very restricted, you know, may be very limited in, in geography or, or weather conditions and so on. And that, that kind of capability is the sort of thing that could happen by 2021. So a very limited service without a driver. And once that is proven to be successful, I think the scope will expand quite rapidly and we'll get to that situation of having level four automation in lots of different circumstances quite quickly thereafter. I'm not saying you know, everyone will be in level four cars by 2025 or, or even 2030, but that, that there could be limited services uh, that people can use where automated vehicles at, at level four are, are used in that sort of time frame is, is very likely. And, and certainly for goods delivery, and we, we haven't talked about that much, but certainly you know, that, that ability to deliver freight using automated vehicles is something we, we will certainly see over the, over the next decade. So yeah, level five, a long way off but level four emerging rapidly over the coming decade. Many thanks, Nick, and, and sorry for putting you on the spot with that one. I know, as I said, it, it's the million dollar question, but it seems like we're we're on the journey to getting reaping some of these benefits from these technologies. They're on some of our vehicles these days and, and we're rapidly developing them and they'll be rolling out over coming years. So um, it seems we're on a positive path. So thanks for your time today, Nick. Dr. Nick Reed, the expert on the future of mobility. We really appreciate you joining us here on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Great to discuss. So I'm joined today by Damien Penny, European Vice President at Lytics. Thanks for joining me, Damien. Well, thanks for having me. I'd like to start each of these interviews with a quick fire question, as you would have heard. So can you tell me how you made your most recent journey and what could have made it better from a safe and healthy mobility perspective? I think that was yesterday. To tell you a little bit of a story, I was having some work done in the house and it was very noisy. And uh, both of my children, who are uh, pretty old now, 20, 22, decided to take me out for breakfast. And uh, usually we walked down to this cafe, but yesterday also it was raining hard. So we took the car. They drove me down, which was an experience. And I ended up paying, obviously. Um, it's, usually, it's usually a walk and we should have walked down, but because of the weather yesterday, we decided to uh, uh, take the car. Um, so how could we have done it uh, more safely? Well, probably walking would be good, but I, I've got to say I was quite impressed with uh, how my son drove us down there. So and I gave him plenty of compliments because he drove really well. Very glad to hear it. So as I said, you're European Vice President at Lytics. So can you tell our listeners why are Lytics so passionate about road safety? Well, Lytics have been around for over 20 years and originally our founder was involved in a a road incident and it was at that point thought how do I prevent these incidents from happening again in the future and ever since then the focus of our business has been all around safety and, and more focused on the safety of the driver um, and making sure we get them home safe at night in fact our, our, our dream and it's very similar to the the brakes uh, vision zero is is that no commercial driver will ever be the cause of a collision and so everything we do is focused around the driver and focused around the safety of the driver can you give uh, me and our listeners uh, a quick overview of, of the kind of work that lytics do yeah sure so i'll give you an answer in two parts really i mean basically what we do uh, we take video and data 
that comes from a, a vehicle to help improve safety, the efficiency of the vehicle and productivity of the company. We work with all types of fleets. We've got about 4,000 fleets and we work with them and we collect a lot of data from them to help them improve the solutions so they could be more effective uh, and more accurate. But fundamentally, what we do is all about safety and it's all about saving lives. And we've been doing this for 20 years. And the core of our business is about how do we get the drivers back home safe every evening? And everything we do is focused around that. Well, that's fantastic. And we're thrilled to be working with you because that chimes so perfectly well with the the values of us uh, here at Brake. So we're also speaking about connected and autonomous vehicles today. It's, I guess the very cutting edge of uh, vehicle technology. How are Lytics perhaps engaging with this move towards connected and, and autonomous vehicles? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we, we've been uh, engaged with many companies. We're a US company and we've been engaged with many companies looking at autonomous vehicles. We've got our camera and uh, sensor technology embedded in some of the autonomous vehicles going around Las Vegas, for example. Um, And so it's an important part of what we do. Uh, We do know that uh, human element is still going to be very, very important as part of this. And so we really are working how we can get the interchange between the human and the technology working effectively. And when I was listening to some of your podcasts, that was one of the challenges is when a human may have to take over from the technology or the technology has to take over from the human and the balance between what a human should do versus the vehicle itself and whether you can ever have a a vehicle out there on its own without a human in some way being in control so that was that was very important but we believe we'll be always involved because even a, a machine can go wrong even a machine can make mistakes and it's then how you identify those mistakes and how you train the algorithms and improve them so the machine doesn't make that mistake again in the future well thank you very much for your time today damon can you tell our listeners perhaps where they can find more information about lytics well the obvious place to go to is uh, lytics.com and what you'll find there is a wealth of information a lots of uh, white papers, etc., about safety. And, and you can also read so many articles from companies and how you can learn from them and what they did to, to make their fleet safest. Thank you very much for your time today, Damien, and for your support of Break in this podcast. No, thank you, Josh.